Well, this morning we are going to enter the joy story, and if you have not read the Bible before, you just got a chance to experience Genesis through 1 Samuel. So you just read about a third of the Bible in the last seven minutes, so feel free to brag to all your friends that you now have understand the basic storyline. And as we open the joy story today, we're going to discover how God, in the midst of this story, uh, reveals himself in some powerful ways. In the midst of difficult times, people making promises and falling short of that, challenges, And today in the joy story, God is going to drop in joy in the midst of conflict. And all of us experience conflict. And we're going to find how David, King David, even before he's David, is going to have conflict. He's got conflict with Goliath. But the bulk of his conflict is going to be with his father-in-law, Saul. And then later on it will be with his son. His whole life is filled with conflict. And yet God works in the midst of it. And I think in the face of conflict, often instead of experiencing joy... I have a tendency to bounce between two extremes. And maybe you do too. Sometimes in conflict, I power up. I said this and I'm in charge and that's right. Hey, do I have plot an org chart here? I power up. I need to be right. And sometimes in conflict, instead of experiencing joy, I'm hurting people. There's tears in the eyes of people I love because I powered up. Other times in the face of conflict, I, I power down. I just let it go. I don't say what needs to be said. I let those emotions get stuffed until they explode later. I feel like a doormat. I resent the fact that I didn't set healthy boundaries. And with Saul, he becomes king and people have high hopes for the nation that he will be the great leader they've been looking for. And yet, two times he disobeys God and the prophet Samuel, who anointed him, that was that oil, that's what they did to anoint somebody as king, confronts him and says, what you've done is wrong, you've uh, not obeyed, you've compromised, you've, you've given in to temptation. And when he's confronted, he powers up. No, I did not. That's not true. That's a good excuse for it. He blames, he excuses, he rationalizes, and therefore he totally loses his connection to his men, morale. Uh, as, a, as a leader, people lose respect for him. So now he comes to a moment in history when the Philistines, I got a chance to see this about a year and a half ago in the valley, the Philistines are gathered around sort of a natural auditorium almost where the mountains shape around the valley. And they bring Goliath out, and as they're confronting him, as they're confronting the people of Israel, it should be the king, King Saul should be the one going out there to fight their lead guy. But he is so powered down, he's lost his integrity, he's lost the morale of the team, everything's fallen apart to the point at which he doesn't know what to do. And that's where we turn the page and we enter David. Now, David is going to not only face Goliath, but then he will be chased by his future father-in-law for years, hunted, maliciously hunted, even though there's no reason for it. And over and over, you see him interacting with joy in the midst of incredible conflict. And if you ask David, what's your secret? Many times we read his journal, it's called the book of Psalms. His journal says, boy, I'm not happy with what's happening to me. Many times, God, I'm not happy with what's happening to me. But he's always joyful about what God's going to do through, through him. And this is really his secret. I'm not happy with what's happening to me, but I'm joyful about what's going to happen through me. And God is going to use these times of conflict and difficulty in his life to develop character, strategies, a kind of love, a kind of obedience, a kind of relationship that would not have been developed any other way. Scott uh, Peck, in his book about uh, team building, says that one of the greatest challenges we have in marriages and in team building in our departments at work is that we have somewhat superficial relationships. And they're working okay. 
But in order to get to deeper relationships, we have to go through conflict, what he calls the tunnel of chaos. But nobody wants to go through the tunnel of chaos because that means you've got to say the, the last 5% or the 10% or maybe get into some awkward, difficult tunnels of difficulty and, well, I thought you meant this, a miscommunication. And yet, over and over, David is able to walk through these tunnels because he carries with him two what I'm going to call tunnel truths. And these two tunnel truths let him work through conflict with his father-in-law, his, his brother-in-law, his wife, who actually, his, her dad, his dad wanted him killed. And yet he works through this in the midst of it with these two tunnel truths. So let's look at those together. The first one is that if God is with me, I am not the underdog. If God is with me, I'm not the underdog. I think when many of us hear the story of David and Goliath, we get this idea that, that David is the underdog and Goliath's a big, mean, nasty. And that's the way it's been taught. And yet when we read the scriptures and when we, when we hear David speak about this encounter with Goliath, we don't hear, we don't hear somebody who thinks they're an underdog. Look what he says here in 1 Samuel. Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He's over ten feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head. He's armed with a coat of mail and the weight of the coat of 5,000 shekels of bronze. This guy looks tough. He looks menacing. He's got the king and all of the army scared. And yet, when David speaks up, David says to Saul... Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. Let nobody be scared of that. We're not the underdog. He's the underdog. Well, where does he get this mindset? Well, he knows that if God is with you, you're not the underdog. Now, uh, if you read a recent book called David and Goliath, it's actually written by uh, Max Malcolm Gladwell, and he shares some incredible insights about why this is not only true then, but it's true now. In fact, his insights in the study impacted him to rekindle his faith, having been away from church for almost two decades. He says, number one, David realized that he was young and agile. And he used that to his advantage going against a menacing military commander who was weighed down so much that he wasn't very mobile. So first of all, he had mobility on his side. Secondly, he was using a sling. And as a sling, he could fight from a distance, fighting against a commander who was very good at close up. Because he was young and agile, he also over and over again says, God's on my side. And if God's on my side, I can overcome whatever. But then when he saw Goliath, he said, Goliath looked menacing. But the very thing that made him look big and menacing are the very things that made him less mobile, less agile. And actually, the thing that made him big made him a larger target to hit. But as they studied this, doctors have found... As they studied, like, why, why was Goliath so tall? What were possible medical conditions that, that allowed him to be so tall? One of those conditions is called acromegalia. It's a condition of the pituitary gland that produces so much uh, hormones that it makes you grow very tall. My son uh, Quinn has a condition around his pituitary gland called uh, optonerve. Uh, I just had it. Anyway, a big fancy term. I, I can't pronounce that correct either. <laughs> Optic nerve hyperplasia. There it is. And so for him, he can sometimes be on the low end of growth because of the same thing. But the same thing that affects his pituitary gland also affects his vision. So for my son, he's in a you know, lower, lower percentile of growth, and he's got some vision issues. The same thing was probably true of Goliath. The very hormone that made him big also made him so he couldn't see very well. Notice two things from the text. Am I a dog, he says, that you come to me with sticks? So David is running at him with a staff in a hand and a sling that he's spinning around. He doesn't have sticks. He's got a stick. 
But Goliath, because he's got this double vision issue, he sees sticks. He probably sees two Davids running at him and two sticks running at him. In fact, he's not very good at hand-to-hand combat. He's not very good at at long-range combat. So he says twice, come to me later. Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds. I can't fight from a distance. Come to me. Come over here and I'll cut your head off. Uh, I'll stay here. Thank you very much. And David used this to advantage. In fact, there's an assistant that helps lead Goliath out to battle. Very possible he couldn't see well enough to make his way out on his own. And, And Malcolm's point is this, that often the obstacles in business, the obstacles in life that seem so great, you underestimate your own strengths and you overestimate the obstacles of your Goliath. An Israeli ballistic um, expert studied how the slingers could throw. They said a slinger could throw a rock at 34 meters per second. He likened that if you went into battle against someone with a sling, it would have the same impact power as a 44 caliber bullet. And who's the underdog? See, David had superior technology. He had God on his side. And this is the thing that he brought this principle and said, if God is for me, I am not the underdog. As Malcolm Gladwell was studying this, he was the one who wrote uh, Tipping Point and a few other uh, New York best-selling author books. He had been away from church for years. As he began to study this, his faith got rekindled. He said, I need to start investigating. I, I started getting to the point I thought the Bible was not true and it wasn't really accurate. As I began to look at these medical studies that confirmed this, I began to realize that maybe this is a history book. And maybe the same power of faith they had, I could have. He studied a, a little town in, in Europe during World War II, when the Nazis were taking over, there's this little town filled primarily with Protestant people of faith. And they turned to the Nazis. They actually told the Nazis. They didn't do this secretly. They told the Nazis, any Jews who want can come hide in our town. And we are not going to let you have them. They didn't lie. They didn't deceive. But they said, the weapons of our warfare, God is with us, and we're going to stand up against the Nazis. And they even told the Nazis that. And in history, more and more Jewish refugees found found freedom and found protection in this little town, and the Nazis never bothered to go in there. It's like, that's incredible. Then Malcolm began to study. Actually, it was a first-hand experience of this, this couple who lost their daughter. She was kidnapped. And later her body was found, and they were interviewed on television. Malcolm was watching. And now their body had been found. They asked the husband, or the father, rather, about meeting or being in the courtroom with the guy who did this to his daughter. And he said, we'd like to meet him. We'd like to show him the kind of love that obviously is missing in his family. Then the camera turned to the wife, the mother, and she said, well, I haven't forgiven him yet. And that struck Malcolm. She actually thinks she will eventually forgive him. And he says, I was starting to see evidence that the Bible was historically true. And I was starting to see evidence that the kind of faith that could let you stand up against the Nazis, the kind of faith that would allow you to overcome bitterness and retaliation, is something I wanted to get involved in. And so this became the very journey for Malcolm that he rediscovered his faith and got serious about not only his faith, but what the Bible had to say. So I don't know about you, but as we step into the story, I don't know what your Goliaths are in your life, the things that are, bring fear into your life, but I want you to know that if God is with you, And he says he will be, if you ask. You're not the underdog. Let's step into the story and let's watch. And this is what's known as the first recorded incident of rock and roll. One rock rolled the giant and he had to go lie down forever. So there it was. And his point is that whether it's an organization or a family, that often we think that we're the underdog and we're not, that our strengths and even our weaknesses can be used to our advantage. 
But David doesn't just have one tunnel truth, he's got two. It's not just that when God is with me, I'm not an underdog. Let's turn the page and look at the second truth. The second truth is that if God is with me, I can overcome. It's not just that I'm not the underdog, I can overcome. Because after he defeats Goliath, he marries King Saul's daughter. And now he's a threat to both Saul and Jonathan. And yet Jonathan is not intimidated by him. Even though he eventually will be anointed the next king, taking away Jonathan's potential power and legacy. But in the midst of the paranoia, in the midst of the politics, in the midst of the malice, in the midst of the misunderstanding, in the midst of, of this man becoming so jealous and enraged, he will chase David up and down the field. All across the countryside, David will continue to overcome. He continues to overcome in a couple of pretty powerful ways. He has the joy of God's protection. One day, Saul is coming to, with 3,000 men, it says, from all Israel and went to seek David. So he came to a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. That means he's going to go to the bathroom. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. So they're hiding out in the back of the cave. Saul's going in to relieve himself. And the men of David said to him, This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. In other words, go kill him. He's vulnerable. He's sort of caught with his pants down. Ba-doom. <laughs> David pulls out his knife. He arose and he secretly cuts off the corner of Saul's garment, his robe. Now, this was not just that's the only thing he could reach. There was a phrase used throughout the Bible that when you're under God's protection, you're under the corner of his garment. In the book of Ruth, Ruth will come to Boaz and say, will you cover me with a corner of your garment? And what David was saying is that I know I'm working in integrity. I know that God has forgiven me. I know what it's like to be God for me, my forgiver, but I also know what it's like for God to be my leader. And as God leads me, I'm walking with integrity and with honesty. I am operating under God's protection. I have the joy, even in the midst of this difficult, challenging situation, that I am operating under the corner of God's garment, his protection. And he's also saying to Saul, Saul, you're not. The jealousy, the anger, the unfair way you're attacking me, you are not under the corner of God's garment. So this is the subtlety that he is describing to him. He's going to call him on it in just a moment. But this is what allowed David in the midst of incredible difficulty in his life. He always had the joy that I don't know what's going to happen, but I know I am under God's protection. He is watching over me. Second thing, let's go and turn the page. It's not just God's protection, but also he is the joy of God's submission. Now, I'll talk about this in just a second. This is one of those words like, oh, submission, that must be terrible. Submission means to be subordinate to the mission. So, for instance, if you're in a family, relational conflict always occurs when you want your own needs met. Me, 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 me. And then you end up with, uh, you know, two ticks and no dog. You know, you, two people trying to suck the needs and, and, and no source for it. When you subordinate yourself to the mission, you say, the mission of our marriage is we want to have a healthy marriage. So I'm going to subordinate my selfishness, subordinate my needs and put yours first. When a team comes together, you say, hey, I've got ideas, you've got ideas, but for what's best for the team, we're going to submit or subordinate our individual preferences to what's best for the team. And this is exactly what David says. So he turns to his man and says, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing for my master. He's the Lord's anointed. God put him in place. I may not like what he's doing. It may not be fair, but I am not going to be the one that lays a hand on him. He's the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. He says, instead of killing him, I'm going to try and overcome him with grace. I'm going to try and overcome him with graciousness. 
And here's what happens in the scene where David is in the cave and submitting under God's protection and trusting God to work in the situation. Here's what happens. Let's watch. There's something so powerful about the joy of submission, and yet it's so counterintuitive. You might say, well, that's probably fine for the Bible times. Yeah, it doesn't work in the real world. Let me give you an example from history. George Washington fought for the independence of America, along with many others. He becomes our first president. He is so popular, he is so loved, that they say, stay on. In fact, there's a, the, England's got a King George. Why don't you become the King George? Let's do away with this republic thing we fought for. You are the king we always wanted. Kings in the past were tyrants. You won't be a tyrant. We want you to be our king. What would you do? What would modern politicians do? What helps you overcome the lust for power? George Washington chose to step down because he submitted himself to our republic and the rule of law. He knew he had fought for something more than his own power. He had fought for a way of living which would have a balance of powers. And so he stepped down. When the message made it over to King George, King George said, this can't be true. But if it's true, he's the greatest leader who's ever lived. That's what happens when you subordinate yourself to the plans and purposes of God. When you subordinate to him as, as, as your leader, you don't find less freedom, you find more. You don't lose joy, you increase joy. And that's what George Washington found, that's what David found. When God is with me, I can overcome through his protection, and I can overcome because of submission to his plan being better than what I am to come up with. But the third thing, and this is here in the text, the third thing that gives him the ability to overcome is conviction. We saw that there in that passage. But it's the joy of God's conviction. Notice what he says to Saul. He says, moreover, my father. He says, I know we felt like we're combative, but I want you to remember, we're in relationship. Many times when you're in a conflict with a team member or family member, and you disagree on something because so-and-so said such-and-such at the Christmas gathering or the Thanksgiving gathering, you start by saying, hey, let's remind each other that we're family. And he says, hey, hey, my father, my father. See, see the corner of the robe in my hand? You're not doing right by me. You're not under the protection of God because of how you're treating me. For in that I cut off the corner of your robe, I did not kill you. Do you see how I could have taken advantage of this situation? I'm not. You're so threatened by me as if I'm taking the kingdom. I had an opportunity and I didn't. See that there's no evil nor rebellion in my hand. Look at my track record. Look at my integrity. Look at the convictions of my heart. I have not sinned against you, yet, yet you hunt my life to take it. And then this is so counterintuitive. Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand will not be against you. I know many of you say, well, I'm sort of, I struggle with the idea of God being a judging God. That just doesn't sound like the loving God that I'm used to or that I like, and I consider myself a modern person. Certainly Old Testament God can be angry, but thank goodness Jesus showed up and said, whew, sorry about my dad, right? I mean, that's what many, many of us have that perspective on the Bible. But let me tell you, only in suburban, insulate America can we struggle with the idea of God being a judging God. If you go to any other civilization in history, they do not struggle. When tyrants come in and steal, when the police come in and they actually do more harm than good, when you see people come in and rip your family from you or kill or rape your family, you don't struggle with the idea of a judging God. You, keep, you pray at night, will you judge sooner? 
And here's what happens. And this is so counterintuitive. Let me show you how powerful it is. When you let God be judge, you can be less bitter. You can let go of grudges. And you can be more forgiving. Let me tell you why. Because if God isn't judge, then what happens is you end up keeping track. Well, I got they owe this person this and they go that. You take the role of judge in your life and you're going to overcome yourself, overwhelm yourself by holding on to grudges and bitterness because you can't trust the accounting of that to someone else. But when you begin to see what David found, that God is an impartial, gracious judge, you say, God, you can do it right, I can't. I can't even pretend to think that I see things impartially, so God, I'm going to let you avenge. I'm going to let you be the judge. What happens, I've seen this so many times with folks, it releases joy into your life because you're no longer so bitter and you're no longer so unforgiving and you're no longer so angry because you've entrusted someone else to take care of it all. And that is why he's able to overcome his lust for power. He's able to overcome his, his lust for vengeance. And yet we don't see some mamby-pamby man here. This is a mighty warrior. This is a man's man. This is a guy with a spine of steel. But he wasn't the underdog because God was with him. And he was able to overcome because God was with him through God's conviction, God's protection, and God's submission. And the same thing is true of you and I. We don't have to be happy with what's happening to us, right? None of us like conflict or difficulty or relational harmony. I mean, imagine your father-in-law coming and saying, it's either me or your husband. And then your best friend, Saul's son Jonathan, he recognizes that his father's off kilter. And so Saul ends up losing his relationship with his daughter, his relationship with his son, and his relationship with his son-in-law. All because he could never overcome his appetites for jealousy and anger and envy. And yet David, in the midst of turmoil, says, I'm not happy with what's happening to me, but I am so joyful for what God has done through me. And the relationships he develops, the character he develops, the relational strategies to deal with all kinds of very difficult, gnarly stuff. And so I want, to know, I want you to know that today, there's no better example of someone who did this in human history than Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ will step onto the scene as the son of David. And he will be the ultimate underdog that comes against political powers. He comes up against corruption. He comes up against a religious system and a Roman empire. And it looks like he's totally the underdog. He's being crucified, nails being pounded into his hands and his feet. There's no way this guy can overcome. And yet, he on the cross looks at those pounding nails into him, pushing a a crown of thorns onto his head, spitting on him and mocking him. And in that moment when he seemed totally vulnerable and powerless, he does something that's been remembered for 2,000 years. He has enough fortitude to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Powerful. Powerful. That's the kind of power that's available to you. That you don't have to be an underdog. But you can't conjure up that kind of power. You can only have that kind of power deposited in you. And when you ask Jesus Christ to be your forgiver, he forgives you of all the stuff we didn't do right. And I got a long list. But he, more than that, he becomes your leader. And he puts his spirit in you. And that spirit works in you in such a way that you can overcome whatever difficulties you face. To which some of you are saying, well, sure, you say that because you're a pastor and you work like two hours a week. I'm sure it must be easy for you, right? must be real nice. I'm sure you got a lot of conflict, a lot of difficulty. I mean, what's the worst thing you got to do? Oh, my PowerPoint didn't work, right? So I want you to hear a real-time story of someone who's been through some real difficulty and how faith has impacted their life. Can we give a warm welcome to Don and Ryan Krangel? Can we invite them up?
Thanks, Ryan. Well, let's begin for backup. You know, some know your story, some don't. So take us back five years, Don, and share a little bit about the challenges you've been through as a family. Okay. Well, it was uh, September 14, uh, 2008, and Ryan was a perfectly healthy 12-year-old boy, uh, went golfing with three of his friends. And on right the, across the street. Right across the street, as a matter of fact, yeah. And on the uh, eighth hole, he was standing on the green, and a tree snapped, and it fell and hit him in the back of the head. And he suffered a severe uh, traumatic brain injury. And uh, they, they rushed him to Children's Hospital, and that was the beginning of uh, about 100 days and five major surgeries uh, to stabilize him. I remember I got a call, and I didn't know you guys at that point. I just remember walking into the emergency room, and, uh, you know, tubes and everything hooked up to Ryan. And I remember thinking, I have no, whatever they trained me in in pastoral care, I have no idea what I'm supposed to say. Because literally it was, he might die at any moment, right? Right. And I remember God sort of said, hey, just share this one verse from Jesus that says, don't worry about tomorrow. Today's got enough problems of its own. <laughs> and uh, I thought, well, that certainly sums it up. And we just pray that God would give us enough, give you guys enough strength to just endure the next few minutes. If that's what it took. Right. Yeah. Right. So what's happened since then? Well, you know, in terms of, you know, how the message from today relates to, to Ryan. Yeah, some of your Goliaths that you guys have yeah. overcome. Really, if I kind of collectively said the first 11 days, you know, when, when we got to the hospital, um, right from the very beginning, when, when the ambulance pulled up, the first person to greet us was the hospital chaplain. And I thought, that's, that's not the norm. Yeah. And then, then we went in and, and I talked to the, uh, the trauma doctor, and I said, is there anything positive you can tell me? I can see the obvious. And she kind of shook her head and she said, he's still alive. And then from there, um, we met the neurosurgeon who said, we're gonna, I need you to sign right here. We're going to take your son in, and we're going to remove 50% of his skull to try to allow the brain to, uh, room to swell. And so we, we waited a long afternoon through about five hours of surgery. He came out, and he said, uh, your, your son made it off the table, but he said the next three days are going to be critical, and uh, if he makes it through, um, in all likelihood, he's going to have some serious de- uh, deficits. Yeah, at that point he's in a coma? He, so, so he's in a coma for 11 days, and, uh, you know, I, I would say on day two we had a resident, uh, a nurse was working on Ryan, and uh, there, she, she needed help, and she called in the middle of the night, called for a resident, and he came in, and he made the comment, um, we just have to let this run its course, yeah. to which I will tell you, my wife, I don't think the, the resident has forgotten how she reacted to that. So... <laughs> So, so we made it through that night, and then we made it uh, for the next 9, 10, 11 days. All we did is watch monitors, and, and he was highs and lows. And on the 11th day, on, you know, I'll never forget it. It still gives me chills today. Um, Shelly said, you know, Ryan, I love you, and she's rubbing his hand. And he's on the vent, his eyes are taped shut, and his right hand comes up, and he goes, you too, you too. Mm-hmm. And she said, he just spoke to me like <laughs> No, and so she did it again, and he did you too. So I ran out. The neurosurgeon was standing out there looking at a CAT scan. I called him in, and he looked at him, just kind of shook his head and called me out in the hall. He said, you know, looking at this CAT scan, he said, there's no medical explanation for what he's doing right now. Yeah. So then the recovery begins, and I remember as a golfer, um, I remember you know, hearing from you or from Ryan that, you know, never golf again, uh, you know, going to miss years of school and probably never graduate with this class. And that was sort of the next big Goliath you guys had to overcome. Tell me what happened there. Well, I mean, actually, when we were in the hospital during those 11 days, we had the, the social worker meet with us about organ donors, um, about mm. facilities that he, could, that he could end up in, 
Nobody ever expected that he would walk. Um, he ended up missing all of the 7th and 8th grade year of school. When we returned in the 9th grade, um, honestly, we didn't know what to expect. And, and, and we, you know, college was the furthest thing from our mind. It was simply, how's he going to do getting back into the classroom? Can he graduate with his class on time? Can he pass his Ohio graduation test? So we had no idea. Yeah. Um, fast forward to today, you know, Ryan's going to graduate with his class on time in May. Um, mm. He's already been accepted. <laughs> He's already been accepted into the College of Mount St. Joe. Um, in fact, he's, <laughs> and, and in fact, he's earned a uh, eleven thousand dollar a year academic scholarship. So, wow. <laughs> now, Ryan, your dad has shared with me many times over the last five years that. Uh, um, Though they would come to church, you drag them to church <laughs> uh, because you feel like your faith in God and experience in the Bible and time at Horizon has has helped you. So tell us a little bit about how your faith has helped you in the midst of all these challenges. Well, like I, I woke up and I had like no control of like if I survived or like if I did survive, what my like value or like what my life would be like after that. So I mean, I was I didn't really have control of much of anything. So faith gave me like something that I could control and really helped me and has continued to help me throughout my recovery. Now, I bet you David told the story of Goliath the whole rest of his life, you know, how God used him in powerful ways. So if you were to look at the last five years, I'm sure there's more stories to come. What are some of the things you would say, well, this is, this is a story I want to tell of things that God allowed me to overcome because of my trust in him? Well, uh, I mean, I've gotten to play on my high school golf team, and I've actually, uh, like, at, at one of my tournaments in my sophomore year, uh, the person running the tournament saw me play, saw us going a little differently. I played one-handed, and uh, a lot of people were following me, and uh, by, by my senior year, he had actually uh, asked me to, uh, yes, Yes, uh, to tell my story before the tournament, and uh, I've also actually uh, just earned uh, all 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 conference honors for my golf. Yeah, and these are things again. Sure. Yeah, I'm awesome. Golf. Well, listen, we all have different challenges, and we all have different Goliaths. But as I have watched um, the Karangles go up against all the challenges, and again, as a, as a father of a son with special needs, no one really knows all the different ripple effect of the challenges that a family faces. But I want you to know that uh, the kind of faith that David had, the kind of faith that Ryan has, that same God is available to you, not only to forgive you, but available to strengthen you. So I'd like to have a prayer, maybe to pray over each one of us and the challenges we have, and uh, to thank God for what he's done in, in Ryan's life, too. Can we do that? Father, I thank you for Ryan. I thank you for the, the faith and the strength that you have demonstrated through his life. Father, I ask for each person who's sitting in this room and they're thinking about some circumstance beyond their control. They're thinking about some Goliath that seems so menacing to them. God, I ask that you would just introduce yourself to them as the God who is bigger than Goliath. As the God who is more forgiving than they could ever imagine, more merciful than they could even believe and yet also is the God who uh, can overcome whatever, whatever appetites, whatever habits, whatever temptations they face.
Father, you'd be available to us. Maybe as you're sitting there, you want to respond to God just in your own heart. You can just say, God, forgive me of what I've done wrong. I want the power that Jesus had in my heart right now. Maybe you want to say, God, I want to trust you to be my leader. Come in and lead my life that I can have that kind of joy. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And then before I let you guys go, you can sit and just watch a quick video. Uh, One of the ways that we want to give back, one of the ways that we feel like we can take the, the, the power and the generosity that God's given to us is by giving back to others. So I want to show you a quick opportunity that you too can give back. Um, it's one thing we do every year as a church, and it's called Feed My Starving Children. Let's watch. Feed My Starving Children is a Christian organization. We produce a nutritious food that we send to starving children in 67 countries around the world. Our food was scientifically designed to restore a child from malnutrition to health. We got rice, and there's soy, and then there's some vegetables, and then there's chicken flavoring. At a mobile pack event, you bring your hands, your heart, and your resources to help feed starving kids around the world. I think this is a great chance to volunteer for anybody because it's only giving up two hours of your time. And the difference you can make is sometimes feeding 50 or 100 kids for an entire year. When my husband and I were done last year, it was like, we want to keep going. We want to package more meals. You get such an adrenaline built up. You can be a part of moving these children from a place of hunger to a place of hope. So it's a little earlier this year. It's a new location. But I want you to know that it's the same motivation we have. We are so overwhelmed by a God who's been so generous to us that we want to be generous to others. And as you give financially, we don't do an offering because we don't want money to be an obstacle for you in your faith journey. But if you want to be part of that, you can give in our offering boxes. If you want to sign up, you can go to our horizoncc.com, and there's a Feed My Starving Children button there. Click on that. You can sign up for a two-hour slot. It's a chance for you to give back as well. So thank you for coming this Sunday. Can we get one more round of applause for Ryan? And we'll see you all next week. Thank you, Ryan. Or we will see you all next week for How to Find Joy in Marriage. See you then.